Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night show, and as you know, on Sundays we get someone in to pick the music, and I'm delighted that tonight my guest is one of my absolute favourite composers, Gavin Bryars. Gavin, it's great to see you. More or less alive, right. <laughs> because the last time I saw you, I was worried about you. Last, it was ten years ago, yeah. uh, I, I, I thought I was on death's door too, and you dropped me off at the hotel, and I, th- I thought you saw, well, we got rid of that one, and uh, <laughs> you hadn't. Bad I, panic, here I am again. I must admit, I was worried about you that night. And, yeah. uh, but anyway, that's, let's, let's move on from that. Yes. Things have improved dramatically. Um, Gavin, it's great to have you here. I know it takes a lot of, it's, a, it's time demanding, this particular show, uh, to pick all this music and be here for the duration. So I, I greatly appreciate it. You're a busy man. But just to, to start, I guess, um, back in the day, um, you were born in Yorkshire. Yes. Whereabouts in Yorkshire? Ghoul, East Yorkshire. It's a small town where nothing happens. It's uh, quiet. It used to be called Sleepy Hollow. It still is. And uh, last year, I actually went back and did my first concert ever in Ghoul. Are you not Ghoul's favourite son or anything like that? They don't have a statue. I don't think Ghoul. No, I doubt it. I doubt it. (laughs) Ghoul's favourite son would probably be Stan Steadman, the great left winger from 1956, who would break the net with a penalty. He was—he's a great man. What team did you support when you were a kid? Ghoul Town. Ghoul Town. Yeah, Yeah, and I still have a season ticket. I go maybe two or three times a year. I'm one of the 140 people there. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the music you would have heard growing up in Ghoul as a small boy. Well, it was almost entirely music that was produced by those of us living there because we never had any concerts. There's no concert hall, there's no theatre, we never had visiting orchestras, anything like that. It was all entirely done by amateurs working together, mostly around the church. I went to a congregational church. My uncle was the church organist. My dad sang in the church choir. My mother was around the Sunday school. I sang in the choir. It was, and my mother was very religious. On Sundays, we weren't allowed to buy a newspaper, buy an ice cream, anything. We uh, had to wear a suit. What denomination was that? Then? Uh, congregational. It's a right. kind of halfway between low church and high church. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a kind of democratic kind of thing. There are people called deacons who helped run the place. But it, uh, we would chant the psalms. So it's, it's not like Methodism or anything like that. But I think that's just my mother's temperament. It wasn't that wasn't the demands of the church. And she spoke up in the town square in the thirties against the opening of a cinema, really? uh, or, or the, open, the cinema being open on Sunday. But later in life, she became very open, and she started running the town family planning clinic for <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. She was she was great. And did that uh, strictness about uh, cinemas and so on, did that extend to music that was al- allowed in the house? No, there was no restriction on that. My mother's, my mother's an amateur cellist. She was a good player. Yeah. My dad was an amateur. He was a bass baritone. He sang in the choir, amateur operatics and stuff. And I, everything that we'd listen to would probably be the radio mostly. And I would have the radio on 
a lot in the third program. When we come back from seeing Gould Town, there's a sequence of uh, of shows that I before went out to the cinema on Saturday night, and there was always as a, a jazz record request. And there was something called Ken Sikora's Guitar Club. And I remember hearing the Hawaiian guitar for the first time there, and I thought it was absolutely magical. You, you were born in 43, right in the middle of the war, actually. Yeah. Um, I often talk to people from that particular period of time, and the third programme comes up. It's yeah. been very, very significant. It's hard for people to understand now that there was, like, there was just this one moment where you might hear something which yes. was different. Yes, it was a it was a special thing. I mean, it, it was in the sort of fifties when I was listening to the radio later, but it was absolutely very. It was a special thing, and they classical concerts, uh, talks, uh, but they had some jazz. I remember hearing Monique Coleman on uh, in when nineteen fifty eight fifty nine, and really? which I fell in love with, and uh, I loved it also because everyone was saying this is so bad. Uh, I think so. It must be, something must be good about it. No, surely Ornette, well, obviously Ornette Coleman wasn't the first jazz that you heard. You oh, no, no. Uh, no, when I was a kid, I, when I was in my young teens, it would be people like the Modern Jazz Quartet, Jerry Mulligan, Dave Brubeck. And the first choice I see is Bill Evans. Yes. So what, what a, well, I mean, Bill Evans is, is kind of extraordinary and a bit like yourself, transcends genre, I would say. Uh, what, what was your attraction to Bill Evans? In the well, when I went to university, I, I sort of I, I sort of drifted into music. I didn't really, I never had no idea what I was going to do, and I was doing a philosophy degree. But when I went to university, I started playing the double bass. I'd always wanted to play the bass, but there wasn't one in Ghoul. So I didn't even get my hands on a bass until I was 18, and I was at university, and there was an old bass in the corner of the music department, and it was kind of battered, the strings were slack and so on, and I asked if I could fix it, and they said, yeah, sure. I fixed it, taught myself to play, I gradually got better and better. By the time, at the end of my first year, I was playing pretty well, and I started playing with a local professional group, which included Derek Bailey and Tony Oxley. Um, I had a, a trio with a guitarist, Ed Spate, who also worked later as a, a jazz player. And I became very good. And the, one of the, the kind of music that we were playing was, at that time, it was about 1962, was based really on the music of Bill Evans, that kind of sound world, as a pianist as well. And um, those kind of chord voicings, and especially for me, the liberation of the double bass with Scott LaFaro and the, his sound uh, was, for me, what that was all about. And for, uh, one of the things I love most about Evans is when he plays ballads, the slow ones. I mean, he can swing like crazy, but the ballads are exquisite. And for me, the greatest of all of them is My Foolish Heart. My Foolish Heart, from Bill Evans, with uh, Scott LaFaro on bass there, and my guest in studio tonight, picking the music, uh, Gavin Bryars, began life as a bass player. And uh, you mentioned Scott LaFaro, that bass player there, liberated the bass. Yeah. So when you, when you started to play bass, first of all, was it under the influence of LaFaro, or was it before that? And, and in which case, what was, what was the trap uh, that, 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 that well, bass the thing, players had to be It was probably the from? thing before, because when I was first playing bass, I was playing with student groups, and then I was playing sort of straight up and down, walking bass, mm. you know, um, bebop tunes and so on, and just getting a good sense of line and... Uh, uh, getting good, good sound and keeping time and making sure that it sw swung. But when I started working with this group with, in Sheffield, with Derek, and um, there they encouraged me to start thinking about that way of playing the bass. But 
initially I, did, I didn't have the technique and little little by practice over over the years I got better and better and by the time I stopped playing I was I would say I was pretty damn good and uh, so I was able to do these kind of things I didn't have Lafaro's facility in the fast high soloing but I worked on that sound and for me the sound was the right thing I remember this um, a good friend of mine, Steve Swallow, who's a bass, yeah. great bass player, who was a bass player before it became the abominable instrument, the bass guitar. But I once showed him a, a photo of my son, who started playing bass when he was five. There's a picture of him at age eight playing the bass, and Steve said that he looked so comfortable at that instrument, it looked so natural. He said, and he said this thing, I hope he experiences the pleasure that we bass players have of playing a good route on the first of the bar. That's it. Just play a good solid first about the rest is decoration. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, uh, you know, again, people's idea of, of the acoustic bass will be, I suppose, that sort of slap bass of, of rockabilly and yeah, so on. Yeah. They see that. And then you think of, you know, Charles Mingus yeah, yeah. and uh, Charlie Hayden, who was a friend of yours, yeah. people like that. I mean, I suppose when you start off as a bass player, you probably don't think that you might be out front, you know, that you could be the star turn in, 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 in the group. That's true. So these people, I guess, change things. Uh, what was Hayden like? Because you, you, you knew him. And you I knew him well. Him. Charlie was a lovely man, and he, he would be the first to play. He's not a great technical player, but he has a good sound, and he can play a strong, solid note absolutely right at the right time, and it's, it's poignant, and it's just perfectly poised. A lot of good peas in there, accidentally. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, it's that way of just the choice of notes and the way in which he will develop a very simple slow line. He will not play high up, generally middle register to low, but it's just that kind of choice and kind of personal way of playing. And who would you cite as your, you know, your favourite bass players right up to the, to the present? I think it would still be Scott LaFaro, yeah. even now. I mean, LaFaro died 10 days after that recording was made. He killed in the car crash. And I don't think he was ever replaced. There are people who develop facility as much as him, and uh, there are great bass players around. But for me, uh, LaFaro is still probably the greatest bass player within jazz and improvised music. So what happened when you heard Ornette Coleman then? Because that's a whole other thing. Well, I loved it because I heard this uh, it's a recording on jazz record requests on the radio, and they played a piece from this uh, the first album of Ornette, which actually had Charlie Hayden on bass. I think he was about 19 or 20 at the time. And it was a sort of kind of bluesish thing, but it didn't obey the rules. And Ornette's playing was really kind of wild. I mean, he had a plastic saxophone, which made it sound not that great, a bit curious. But I love the kind of freedom of it and the sort of really heterodox way of playing. He was breaking rules and he was annoying people. And at that time, that was one of my characteristics. I used to love like reading beat poetry and Kerouac and all this in the mid-50s. That sort of rebellious world, you know, the John Osborne playwrights, Brendan Behan uh, literature and all that kind of stuff, that's what I loved. And uh, so the, the kind of wildness and the kind of craziness of it and the fact that the critics were putting it down so strongly meant that I thought there must be something in there. Mm-hmm. And Derek Bailey, when you're working with him, um, you, you said it was, there was a kind of a Bill Evans sort of soundscape and all of that. But how, how, how wild did that get in terms of improvisation? Oh, eventually it got very wild. Yeah. In fact, eventually the pianist left and it was just me on bass, Derek on guitar and Tony Ox on drums. And then we started to play more freely and eventually completely freely. And I, I don't want to get into the kind of history of it all, but it would appear that we were probably the first people playing free in England. But then we were in isolation. We were in Sheffield. We were in the north. We weren't in London, so we didn't get known. 
and there were virtually no recordings from that time. Um, what was your motivation at that point? Because it certainly wasn't to have a career to make money because the, it wasn't possible. Was it, it was the music. We just believed in what we were doing. We just tried new things all the time. The, the, the one thing that hasn't come up yet or I haven't asked you about is we're talking here about improvisation, free jazz, all the rest of it. Had you at this point or when did you learn the dots, notes, composition? When did you have your music lessons as such? I was more or less self-taught at music. I mean, I obviously I did music at school, I did a, like A-level music. I had intended to do music at university, but then found to do it, I'd have to do it uh, with a modern language as an equal subject. So I thought, I want to just do one subject, I'll be lazy, I'll do philosophy. And I had some music lessons, but not really, I didn't really study. So in fact, effectively, I'm self-taught. Uh, and while I was working with Derek and Tony, I was starting to write things, try to write things little by little, they were pretty incoherent. Ironically, one turned up quite recently. I did a concert in Italy about three weeks ago where, with a guitarist, and he'd come across a piece that I'd written for me and Derek to play in 1965. And we played it in a concert in Italy, and it was strange, like going back all these years, and there I was playing this stuff, and I could vaguely recognise it, but it just wasn't me anymore. It was just like some distant relative. Your next music choice. People will know, Gavin, Jesus Blood. I play it a lot on the programme here. You have one on your list here, The Briar and the Rose from Mercy and Grand. It's a Tom Waits song. Tell me a little bit about this before we hear it. I had a project with Opera North where I put together a band to do the songs of Tom, Tom and Kathleen, his wife, um, as a project. And we created this band and the singer was a kind of classical white mezzo-soprano, sings opera and Sondheim, that kind of thing. So the idea was we would hear the music rather than Tom's performance. And so you would hear the quality of his composition, the quality of his, his text and so on. And I, we, we did this, uh, an album, uh, and we toured with this band, and occasionally we still play. And the, the whole thing is basically the music of Tom Waits. We added some extra things, like there's a couple of vile pieces we do sometimes, but essentially it was a way of exploring the work of Tom. And this one, The Brian and the Rose, I actually did this almost like a kind of uh, a homage to Charlie Hayden. We've made an incredible radio link here, which is a complete fluke. That's uh, what you it, think. What do you think? <laughs> all right. You know, okay, I'm being manipulated. All right. That's what it's all about. Um, but it was, um, I did this as a, effectively as a kind of bass solo. So the singer only sings very briefly, and I play it as, like as a Charlie Hayden simple bass solo. Jess Walker there with uh, Tom Waits' song, uh, The Briar and the Rose, with uh, Gavin Briar's my guest playing bass and uh, his arrangement and so on. Gavin, tell me a little bit about this, your relationship with Waits in particular, because I know a lot of people listening to this programme and myself, huge Tom Waits fans, fascinating character by the looks of it, and uh, has, has done such extraordinary, extraordinary work. Your Jesus blood never failed me yet with Tom's voice and so on. I think we probably know the story of that, so there's probably no need to get into that again. But tell me about how you interact with Waits. How did that come about? He got in touch with me in the mid-'80s. Uh, he was 
uh, I think, doing some performances in, in England, 86, 87, something like that. And he got in touch. With, I had managed at that time, and I think his management got in touch with them. They wanted to know if I had um, the album Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet, the old obscure vinyl record, because he had either lost his or it was broken or something. And, it, and he said that he, it was his favourite album. And for me, that was incredibly high praise. And as it happened, there was a kind of pristine vinyl in the office, still in its cellophane. And so we, I got it to Tom, and, and he actually then let me have two tickets for his concert. And ironically, I couldn't go, so the place was sold out, and there were two empty seats, which I always re regret having left. Um, but we'd made that contact. And then later, he, he was, I'd, I'd worked with Robert Wilson on my first opera, and he started working with Bob Wilson on theatre works, um, you know, the, 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 um, the Black Rider um, yeah. and Alice in Wonderland. And... Um, he performed. There was a performance of one of, of one of the. I think it was a Blue, Black Rider was at um, in Paris. And I, I went to performance this '89, and uh, he uh, was there and sang the encore. And uh, we, we actually just set, briefly said hello at that time, and I was mainly with Bob Wilson. And then I had going to have a project to work on an opera called Doctor Ox's Experiment, and I had this idea of Tom appearing in this, in this opera, because the opera is about a, a quiet town where two strangers come into the place and they're not like anybody else in the, in, the, in the place at all and they gradually transform it into in a very strange way. So I thought one way of showing the difference between these strangers and people in the town was these people in the town would be singing like opera singers, but this person who comes in doesn't sing like an opera singer and Tom was as far away as like, you could get. Yeah. And, and I asked Tom about it, and he was interested. So we were having this dialogue about him performing in this opera. And this was like sort of early, early 90s. And then um, the, uh, Philip Glass came up with the idea of reissuing Jesus' Blood or doing a new version of Jesus' Blood for his, out, for his label. And he, uh, he wanted to do this. And uh, in fact, curiously enough, he, he felt he wanted to know what else I would like to have on the album because the old vinyl recording was just 24 minutes long. And I explained, well, it was that long because you, you had to have a side break or you lose quality if you go any longer. And I would actually fill the whole album with it. And he got very worried because basically I think if he'd done it, he would simply just triple every repetition and it'd just get very, very boring. It's pretty boring anyway, but he would be even <laughs> more boring. But So what I did was to make the first 24 minutes exactly the same structure, but with like top American players in New York. And then to take the piece on a different orchestral journey through having choirs, different orchestrations, because by 1993, I was better at my craft than I had been in 1975. And then at a point somewhere about two thirds of the way through, I had this idea that so far, everything we've had in this, in this piece is just accompanying the old man singing. And I thought, well, maybe someone should actually sing along with him, like he's found a friend on this journey and he sings along. And I thought of Tom. And I asked Tom, and Tom was enthusiastic about doing it. Um, and eventually he did do it. And we met, and the day we spent recording together in California, in Northern California, was probably one of the, the happiest and most glorious musical days of my life. It was terrific. We got on very well. We like each other. We're in touch every now and again. I send him an email for his birthday, and uh, most of the letters are emails I get back. For example, when we're doing Mercy and Grand, we're generally from Kathleen. He, she's the one who does the communication. But once in a while, I get one from Tom. You know it's from him. Because the whole thing is in uppercase letters, all capital letters all the way through. Uh, Kath Kathleen does normal ones, so I always know when it's Tom. Um, 
But we agreed with Jesus' blood that we were, that was a one-off. I don't allow anybody else to make versions like that. And uh, so no one else is allowed to sing. People do, I'm sure, but it's against the rules of the publication. And we agreed that we would, we would never perform it live. That was it. It's a one-off. In fact, we agreed two things. One was that, and the other one, which was Tom's point, he says, if ever anyone decides to develop a wine called Jesus' blood, we won't allow them to use it for advertising. <laughs> he was going through some alcoholic issues at the time, I remember. And that, we agreed that. I noticed on your list um, there is a version of Jesus' blood. Yes. Is this one with Tom on it? Yes. Okay, right. Well, let's, why don't we just play that one now? Okay, we're going to jump ahead a little bit because I noticed on the list, yeah, yeah, Gavin, sure. there's, a, there's a version. This is the single remix, remix. of Jesus' blood uh, composed by Gavin Bryce with a little help from two other gentlemen. Jesus Blood, the uh, single remix known as the B version, music by Gavin Bryars, who's with me in studio there. It's extraordinary, Gavin, isn't it? I mean, you were listening to that as intently as I... That, does that move you still when you listen yes. to that? Um, I, I first saw that voice in 1971, and I remember when we made this recording uh, with Tom uh, in New York, We were, I think someone worked out that we'd heard that voice, that single repetition, I think it was 14,000 times in the whole period of the recording. So given that I've worked done many performances since 1971, it's getting in, certainly in six figures, maybe even seven figures by now. And when I'm playing it, I mean, I remember conducting the Adelaide Symphony and I remember this big hall full, uh, Adelaide Town Hall, big orchestra in front of me, and this voice, this fragile voice starts. And I still get a little shiver, it just, and I still hear things in the voice uh, which surprise me or I haven't noticed. It's just because it's, it's rhythmically inaccurate. Uh, there's little kind of touches and the rhythm staggers a little bit. Um, and then when the first strings come in, I, I, something happens. Funny, I was, just before you came in tonight, Gavin, I was talking to my, my colleague about emotion in, in art generally, in poetry and in music. And how easy it is, or it seems to be quite easy to manipulate people's emotions. You know, when you create this kind of sort of fake emotion, it can be done. And people sometimes measure the, the quality of a poem by how many people it can make them, if it can make them cry, for instance, as if that's the only, you know, the only objective of, of art. There's something, can, have you ever looked into why something like that is, is deeply moving, deeply emotional? No, and I, I probably would never do that because then I'd get a formula for how to get a cheap cry. Yeah. Um, it's rather like there's a, something that the painter Barnett Newman said about implying about self-analysis, said, you know, um, aesthetics for an artist is like ornithology for the birds. <laughs> Once you start looking at it like that, in detail, you just lose it and you lose the power to behave naturally. Mm. And for me, uh, things will actually have a natural resonance or they won't. And if you're writing something uh, which touches you as a composer, then if it touches someone else, good, well done. But I don't aim to produce like, an effect. I was, in fact, with this particular piece, I was very surprised 
at the beginning when I realised how powerful it was. And I have a performance coming up in Ireland on the 23rd in Dundalk. And that will be very touching because for the first time I'm using some sort of young children, young instrumentalists and singers. Uh, and I, I'm probably, I'm not going to predict, but I would say I would probably be quite touched at that moment because when that happens in the middle of other people playing, you know, professional people, this sound will come in. It may be fragile, it may be imperfect, but the old man is that too. And I think that will be touching. So that's something to look forward to for me. You were involved in in, in that particular remix. Yes. And it, it reminded me then that FX Twin remixed some yes. of your music as well. What's it like to hear your own composition rearranged by somebody else? Well, it's refreshing. I mean, one of the th it's flattering too. Uh, the thing with FX Twin, he did something from the sink of the Titanic. And these were th he was working and doing some things with Philip Glass and it was Philip Glass's label. And Philip said to me, you know, FX Twin, Richard wants to do this. Uh, uh, would you let him? And I said, well, look, if I say no, he's going to do it anyway. So what's the point? So what I did was to give him lots of component parts so he could create something not just out of the final version but from the components that I'd used. And he, he created something which I th think is very intelligent. Yeah. And I actually sometimes now use a fragment of his version in live performances of the piece so you have this little kind of in the distance. It's like some old engines wheezing away in the background. Yeah. And yeah. it can do that. You know, and that's... Uh, you know, hearing something in a fresh way or surprising uh, is always uh, astonishing. Let's let's have, maybe have another jazz track, maybe the Cold Train track, perhaps. Sure. Um, After the Rain, which is the most beautiful tune. And uh, I was going to say it's very gentle, but of course it, uh, that's the title of the album as well, yeah. The Gentle Side of John Coltrane. Um, a new Coltrane album just been discovered, of I course, heard, as I saw well. That in and and, yeah. and, and, and uh, we've been playing little bits of it. It's uh, quite extraordinary. Um, when you first heard Coltrane, did did you hear him? Did you did you did you go on that journey with him, or did what point did you land in on his musical? Trip? I started. Well, I heard Coltrane first, probably with the, with the uh, Miles Davids uh, uh, group when Bill Evans was playing with it. But I actually did hear Coltrane live in 1963. Really? Yeah, he was touring, uh, and it was I, I wanted to hear Eric, Eric Dolphy, who was with the group. Yeah. And were, I was at Sheffield University, and we had a trip down to the De Montfort Hall in Leicester. Coltrane was playing the Coltrane Quintet the first half, Dizzy Gillespie Sexet the second half. Wow. In the first half, he was playing, people were walking out, and of course they all came back for Dizzy, but I just thought it was fantastic. But the only problem for me was he played uh, my favourite things on soprano. Mm -hmm. So he and Dolphy play the, the tune, and then he started, um, Coltrane starts soloing. 45 minutes later, he's still soloing, and then eventually... Dolphy comes from the side to play the tune and goes off. And I wanted to hear Dolphy solo. I never heard it, but it was an amazing thing. So I saw him live. And I love Coltrane's playing. Uh, and he's a, an incredibly uh, wide-ranging and really, I think, absolutely fascinating musician. But there is this other side, you know, that he does play ballads. But there's a rough edge to the edge. But with this particular piece, there's another little story here. When I was playing with my ensemble ones in Italy, I think it was someone like Ferrara, we were playing in. We we're going to play in this courtyard of a beautiful old building, and we set up on this stage with all kind of electrical stuff. And there was this unbelievable electrical storm, and the ring was belting down. We had to stop and band it because it would be too dangerous. So that the, the concert never happened. And we, I was touring, and each day we'd have a one day playing, a travel day playing. So we had a travel day coming up. So I suggested to the organizer, "Well, look, we'll do it the next day." So I let my band go off to the seaside, and I stayed in the hotel. And what I did, I wrote my memory of um, After the Rain 
as an intro to this piece, the first piece we're going to play. So this piece start, we started this concert after the rain, because of the rain last night. We start with after the rain, and I did this, my wrote an arrangement after the rain from memory. So this piece was sort of ingrained in me somewhere, and it came out in this kind of strange way. Terrific. After the rain, John Coltrane. John Coltrane, After the Rain, the choice of Gavin Bryars, who's with me in studio. Just amazing, isn't it? Beautiful. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I have to ask you about Cage, who seems to be a, seems to have been a fascinating character. And I, I often listen to, when I find interviews with him on radio and so on, I'll listen to him. I don't know if you've ever heard those radio happenings, himself and Martin Feldman talking to each other. They're just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what, what was he, I mean, in what, in what capacity did you work with him? What did you well, do? Well, I was, uh, I'd met Cage in 66 when he was in with Cunningham in London. I went backstage and met him at the theatre when they were playing. Well, the friend t- dragged me around there. I was, I was too shy, but he, anyway, he, he was more brassy, and we went and we met him and talked to Cage. And Cage was generally nice and was actually interested in what kind of thing we were doing and actually took some manuscript pieces of mine with him. Uh, and then um, I went out to Illinois to work with some dancers uh, at the University of Illinois. It turned out that Cage was there on a fellowship, and we bumped into each other in New York, and he remembered me. And... Um, and then we realised we were going to be there. But it, 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 to cut a long story short, when I was there, I was only on a tourist visa. I wasn't allowed to work. And I kept having to renew the visa to complete this project. And Cage knew that, and he knew that I wasn't allowed to work. So he gave me some work as an assistant on a project he was doing, which became called HPSCHD, Harpsichord, where it involved transcribing things so the computer could accept the data. So I was just doing tasks for him, he, he, and he paid me out of his own pocket so I could live there for that time. It was an incredibly generous gesture, and it was just... Him doing it personally, there was no edge to it at all. He was an unbelievably nice man, probably one of the funniest people I've, I've ever met, but really incredibly intelligent and very quick uh, with ideas and quite crazy in many ways, but in the nicest way. I, I, I know some people who worked with him and said that uh, they were getting out of an elevator one day and a little ping, and he said, what a fascinating sound. <laughs> and he recorded them playing pool. He liked the sound of the ball yeah. going into the pocket. You know, that kind of stuff, that, that level of, of fascination with, with, with sound. I remember also at a party at Easter time, uh, there's other composer, Ben Johnson, who was in Illinois, at his house, and uh, there's that thing where you're hiding little miniature Easter eggs, and Cage was hiding them in the garden, and he was putting them inside the um, petals of tulips and putting a little elastic band around them. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody ever found any of them. It was usually the ones which were kind of drooping over. Those were the, the ones which had the egg in them. <laughs> but it must, it, you know, for a musician... Uh, who's got ideas of their own to run into someone like Cage. It must be, again, as you mentioned about Scott LaFaro on bass, it must be liberating. Yeah. And also, the great thing with Cage is that he was... He, he wasn't a teacher. No one studied with Cage. You worked with him and you took on his ideas and his uh, approach to things. But the measure of his greatness is that nobody who worked with Cage ever writes music that sounds like it. You, you go away and he sort of puts you in a condition where you can go and you write what you were doing before but in a, with a different perspective. Whereas if you were to go away and study with you know, Stockhausen Bullers, if it didn't sound like them, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. So in a way, he's much more liberating, more open, more generous. Next choice, Gavin. Um, I see a Leonard Cohen arrangement here. 
<laughs> well, your own arrangement of Leonard yes. Cohen, we need to hear this. So t- give me the background to, to this one. Well, there's a group in Toronto. I live part of the year on the west coast of Canada. My uh, wife is a Russian film director who'd emigrated to Canada, so we live part of the year on the west coast. And The best and line we've ever had on the show is my wife is a Russian film director. It's the first time anyone said that. That's the best line I've ever heard from all anybody. Right. And she's incredibly beautiful. Well, I bet she is. And she's 23 years younger than me. Where did it all go wrong? It hasn't gone wrong so far. So far, so good. We have two kids. You know, because she's actually mostly filming in Russia. That's a catch. But we're always together in the... We, because we kept the house on the West Coast when we moved to England. And so we have this house right on the Pacific Ocean. I swim there every day. And so end of June through to September, we're all there, uh, out there. And so I, I, I have a lot strong connection with Canada. And there's a group in Toronto called the Art of Time Ensemble, uh, run by a pianist called Andrew Barashko. And... They have a sort of used to have an annual project where they would do a, 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 what they called a songbook, and they would get different composers, musicians, arrangers to do arrangements of songs. And I've done, I've, I've done I think about four or five Leonard Cohen songs. I've I did I did um, um, the Beatles song uh, uh, something because it was the anniversary of I think Abbey Road. Uh, I've done uh, a thing with Madeleine Peru, uh, Billy Holiday song. Uh, and how, does, do you, how do you approach that notion of, of arrangement? Well, uh, basically, I, I look at the song and I know how, it, how it's been done by those people who sing it regularly. And I just start to think, well, let's think it in a different way. I have a, a friend, a Canadian singer, uh, Holly Cole, yeah. uh, and she did a, a Tom Waits album in which she did all the, all the fast, his songs he does fast, she does slow, mm. and vice versa. And so it's a way of just, let's see what happens if you do, take another angle on it. So I, I'm given this instrumentation for... The Art of Time Ensemble, which is piano, guitar, bass, violin, cello, and, and one reed instrument, probably a sax, and that's it. And then, and the singers are usually uh, either cabaret singers. This particular one is Stephen Page, who was was it called, uh, something Naked Ladies, a rock group, the Canadian. Bare Naked Ladies, yeah. Yeah, that's it. He was, and he was their lead singer. So the people working outside their field, like just as I was, so was he, and the ensemble would play, they're all classical players. So I create something which, uh, in a way, has the essence of the Cohen song, but it takes it in another direction. Apparently, Cohen likes these stuff, or he did. Mm. Uh, So I I enjoy doing them, and it's just a a way of just using your craft in a different direction. It's, It's quite relaxing to do it. Okay. Now the courtroom is quiet, but who will confess? Is it true you betrayed us? The answer is yes. Then read me the list of the crimes that are mine. I will ask for the mercy that you love to decline. And all the ladies. A singer must die. Uh, music from uh, Leonard Cohen, arranged by Gavin Bryars, who's with me in studio, and performed by uh, the bloke from Bare Naked Ladies, Stephen Page. Stephen Page. Stephen Page. Yeah. Um, the bloke from Bare Naked Ladies, <laughs> as he has forth been known. So, uh, Gavin, one of the things when I was, you know, explaining to people that you were going to be on the on the program, and you know, you're always looking, you know, just for the sake of uh, you know the publicity tweet or so on to to describe what someone does, and. I was having trouble describing the kind of thing that... Describe in one word what it is you do. And then I looked at your own website and you have the same problem because your website more or less begins with it's it's impossible to categorise the music of Gavin Bryars, you know. Um, Because when I look at it, you're composing now for theatre, for dance, opera, you know, everything, everything. And 
the, the, the amount of influence is in what you do. Is, is much broader than someone who has come straight out of that, directly out of the classical world. Well, that's probably because I don't come out of that classical world directly. You know, I had to find my way when I was first uh, starting to write music after I'd been improvising. I wasn't, wasn't very good at what I did. And basically, if anybody invited me to do a project, I would say yes, and then work out how on earth could I do it. And the biggest one was when I was asked to write my first opera, having never done anything at all. I have nothing for the voice, nothing for orchestra, nothing. In ancient Greek, I don't even read or understand it. And I agreed to do it. And I learned how to write an opera by writing one, not by studying it. And so what you develop a craft by in this hands-on way. It's rather like a kind of sculptor messing around with clay or stone or whatever. Eventually, um, you know, you find your what's inside. You know, I think Alex Ferguson said about you know chipping away of it. You know, this block of stone somewhere in there is an elephant. You know, that's <laughs> the guy knows. You know. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, it's 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 a, it's it's common to quite a few of the people we've had on this program as a guest that at a certain point in their life they're asked to do something. In your case, it was an opera. And they haven't a notion how to do it, but they go and do it anyway. Yeah. That has come up quite a few times with people, you know. And yet, how did you learn how to, how to you know, you need to communicate what you, your ideas to other people, so you have to write this down. Yes. Where did you learn that? By doing it. I mean, I, I would have to study very fast. In the case of writing an opera, I had eight months to write a five-hour opera in, in ancient Greek. <laughs> and uh, I was teaching full-time, so I had to work fast. I, I listened to things, I studied things, I looked at scores. Given the opera was Medea, I looked at those uh, operas, which, uh, operatic composers who had written successfully for the solo female vo voice for the sopranos. So I looked at Wagner, I looked at Strauss. And I looked at how they'd orchestrate, how they accompany, the kind of lines they write, how they approach the voice. Uh, little by little, and then by working in the production, I was working actually with the singers, actually with the orchestra, and I, I always make a point of whatever, I always listen to what they tell me. So sometimes you're playing something and you make it like, like, like a phrase for the French horn and they will say, it's very beautiful, but you know, if you did this or do that way around, it's easier for me to do that. Or if you're writing some string chord and they're playing fast arpeggios across the string, someone might say, well, if you put it the other way around and put that finger there, it's so much easier. It's exactly the same sound, and you just listen, and eventually you think about the player, how, what they're physically having to do. And once you get to that stage, you can then, um, they then realise that you're thinking about them and their playing. You're not just writing notes, and they struggle to find a way through it. And that way you get a different level of commitment in the performance because they realise that you are on their side. And I am a working musician, I'm a practical musician, and I learn by practice. And of course, with the human voice as well, I mean, it has yeah. it has limitations. There's no point in you writing an opera if there's only one singer on earth who could possibly do it, you know? No, well, except at some point, I remember writing a, a, a big orchestral piece for two voices at that time. I couldn't imagine any any other two singers could ever do it. And then sort of 20 years later or so, the um, uh, Dutch orchestra wanted to do it and they found a young uh, countertenor in, in Holland, a soprano in Vienna who could do these things. And suddenly you find the people can do it. Mm. They turn up. Uh, it, it's uh, you work with something extraordinary, and then someone else will take it on, and they take it further. It was you can be, always be surprised and always find something new. Or even if you're doing something relatively banal. I mean, like for example, I found myself working with Father John Misty on this album a couple of years ago, and I just did you know seven arrangements for him playing live in Belfast, and that's in just a different world altogether. And you know that sound check on the stage in Belfast was the loudest thing I ever heard in my life. But but you learn, you learn something, and you still have to use your ears to discriminate. Tell me a little bit more about Father John Misty because there's a real he's got real purchase at the moment. Everybody's talking about him. Are and, they? Oh. Yeah, and 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 
to you was it just I don't mean just another job, but did you did you spot anything in him? I'd never heard of him before. Yeah. You know, it's, it's rather like those kind of uh, classical things in sort of trials where a judge would, someone would mention the Beatles and say, it's popular, popular beat combo, Millard. Yes. <laughs> it's one of those things. I didn't know what the hell he was. My, uh, my kids knew. And I remember my kids, suddenly my street cred grew when I was doing this range of Father John Misty. It's rather like, I think, last year. Uh, I did uh, played in a festival in Kentucky, Big Ears. Uh, no, Tennessee, uh, uh, Big Ears Festival. And the, in the October before, the fact that me and Carla Blay were both playing there was the front page of the Rolling Stone, the American edition of the Rolling Stone. And suddenly my kids thought, Dad, you're on the front page of the Rolling Stone. Actually, your music isn't that bad after all, is it? You know, ah, I thought it was real shite, but no, it's all right. I thought it was boring. So suddenly, you know, you develop street cred. So I didn't know uh, Josh, uh, Josh Tillman, Father John Missy at all. And in fact, it was... Uh, Ila, uh, Ila Linnard, who got in touch with me, I remember he phoned me, I was driving down the M1 at high speed and rather rashly I took the call, and Thomas Bartlett, who worked with Josh, yeah. uh, worked with Ila, wanted, wondered whether Josh had asked Thomas if I might be interested to do something. That's, so actually the whole thing came through Ireland, ironically, you know, and I, uh, because I live on the west coast of Canada in the summer and he was in Hollywood, I could just take a plane down the coast without changing any time zones and just do the whole thing. I was treated like rock and roll royalty. I had a three balcony, five room suite in, in Chateau Marmont on Sunset Boulevard. It's oh, ridiculous. Oh yeah, that's 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 the beginning of the end once you're in that place. I expect. Oh yeah, I, yes. I, I hope the limo's outside afterwards, John. I, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> Chateau Marmont. Oh yes. Now um, you mentioned not coming from that classical world. Yeah. What were the, what would you say were the, the benefits of that for you not coming from that world? Well, I think one is that you are probably more open-minded. You're more uh, open to other things. The fact that for a long time I taught in a fine art college, because in the, <coughs> those days when I was doing this experimental stuff, we weren't employable in universities or conservatoires. We were not getting anything commissioned from the arts council or orchestras. So we just wrote for each other as friends. And so you develop a different kind of outlook. But if you t spend a lot of time talking with fine artists, they talk about ideas. If you're talking about musicians, they're usually talking about money or who's getting the gigs and so on. With artists, you, uh, they think in a different way. And so by making a lot of collaborations with fine artists, with other people, you learn their approach. And it's not just that ivory tower thing of being a composer, sitting in your studio, writing the dots, someone goes and plays it. You're engaged with someone else's mind. And that is, to me, is a great benefit. And so I've always worked hard, uh, not to find co uh, collaboration, but to respond to collaborations when they're offered. So when I first worked, with, for example, with the Hilliard Ensemble, I learned so much about the human voice I could never have learned if I'd only written opera, because you learn a degree of refinement, all kinds of things about tuning, about phrasing, about language, about intonation, all sorts of things. Uh, so the and if you take on board the new things you encounter, they become part of your craft. The irony is, bit by bit, now I'm in a situation now where I could write anything for any combination of instruments anywhere in the world, but you're running out of time. The irony is, you know, find it, by the time you get it, you've not got much longer to go. And the reason people are asking me to do all these things now is to think, will you be still here next year? That kind of thing, you know. So um, that's the irony, you know, you, you get to a certain level. Whereas if I'd studied, probably I would have been at that technical level earlier, but not in terms of ideas. And also just an openness to music. I mean, your next choice, yeah. for instance, is music by Silvestroff. And uh, it's, this is music that I first heard on ECM records about 10 years ago, and it's extraordinary. Now, if you told me that 17-year-old me I'd be listening to a choir, you know, I'd, I'd go, no, that's not my world at all. And yet 
you, you get to the point, and I think it's more so for people who don't come through the classical route, you're less inclined to, to box something off. You know, it, it, what kind of music is it? I mean, what word is a bit like, like your music? What exactly is it? There's no need to actually nail it down as any one particular thing. And I find something like Silverstrom has more in common with, with Brian Eno than it has with Mozart. I mean, I don't, don't know exactly what I'm talking about here, Gavin, <laughs> as you probably figured out. But, but you know what I mean? I, my, my reference points are broader yeah. and therefore I'm less... Less inclined to narrow and the fact down. that you know I worked with Brian you know, and with Arvo Pett, you, uh, the two come together, and I like Richard Strauss. And I remember, I came, I've heard the Silvestrov completely by accident. I was working with the Latvian radio choir, and for me, they're probably the greatest European choir, probably one of the best in the world. And I went to the rehearsal, and there, there were these groups arranged around the perimeter. So I thought, okay, it's right, it's my piece. But there were these three guys standing in the middle, who were not in my piece. So I thought, oh, it's a bit strange. And they started singing. I realised we're rehearsing something else. They're running a bit late. And this music started, and I was just stunned. It was, for me, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard in my life. I just hadn't got a clue what it was. It was absolutely exquisite. It was so perfectly in tune, really slow, rich harmonies, sub-octave bass Russian voices, incredibly long phrases. And I, I just thought, this is paradise. And... I learned afterwards it was by Silvestrov. It was a piece called Diptychon. It's in two parts. The first part is the Lord's Prayer in Russian. The second part is a Ukrainian poem. And at that time, I was, I was, uh, I was also starting my own label, which was entirely <laughs> selfishly of my own self. But I decided this th piece was so important <coughs> that it should be heard, so I put it on my own label. And it was one of the very few choral pieces of Silvestrov. And I remember the Latvian direct, uh, musical director said that they were pretty sure that Sylvester would have never heard it like that because the Ukrainian voices were being rather thick, rather wobbly. These are incredibly pure, accurate, could sing unbelievably slowly and never run out of breath. And I just thought it was just absolute heaven. And we're going to hear the Lord's Prayer, which is the first part. Yeah, my son had to learn the Lord's Prayer in Russian when he was baptised in the Orthodox Church when he was 11, right? OK, well, here we go. <laughs> Play this for him. I suspect if I was to present this programme for the next 50 years, you wouldn't hear anything more beautiful than that. Thank you, Gavin, for that choice. Music from uh, Silvestrov from uh, Diptychon, The Lord's Prayer. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Incredible. Just, just amazing. We're going to take a quick break, Gavin, so uh, stay with us. We'll be right back after these. And this is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. We're here until 9 o'clock. It being Sunday, we've got a guest here picking the tunes. I'm delighted to say it's the composer Gavin Bryars who's with me tonight. And Gavin's been picking some extraordinary music. And yet, we're heading for Tiny Tim. I don't know where this is going to take us. Tell me about Tiny Tim. Folk icon in lots of ways, not just a novelty act. Oh, not at all. I, I came across Tiny Tim the first time I was living in America in 1968. And the album, you know, his first album came out and Tiptoe Through the Tulips was a... A kind of a cult hit single, and all kinds of people started um, like we played at the Albert Hall. People like the Who, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones all t took boxes to see him. 
and I joined his fan club. Uh, I still have the fan, the uh, magazine, which gives you all his other names. He, his, his full name was Herbert Corey. He called himself, he thought about Derry Dove, Larry Love, Tiny Tim, and so on. Eventually, he settled on Tiny Tim. I just love, A, that he's completely sincere. I mean, he does these old uh, sort of sort of music hall songs from the beginning of the last century, uh, all sorts of strange pop songs, but he's, he's completely genuine. And, and he has this fantastic falsetto voice, but he also has this really rich baritone. And when he's recording albums, uh, the first album, for example, he'll move between the two. So he'll have, like, for example, he has uh, that Sonny and Cher number, I Got You, Babe, and he has, does a men voice out of one speaker, the woman's voice out of the other. And then eventually they come together. And he's playing with this whole game. Um, I just found him just uh, absolutely riveting. I've got all these albums. I'm playing in the, in the car. My kids just say, turn it off, Dad. I can't stand it. But I think it's fantastic. And there was, in 1990, I once uh, was offered a uh, job be musical director of a show with Tiny Tim in, in Paris. I was going to be directing two shows with him and Ima Sumac. Well, you know something, when you mentioned the, the voices, that occurred to me as well. Many octaves did she have? It's supposed to be seven, but it, must, it, can't, it can't be seven. But it was, it, was, it was said to be, I think it was about four or five. But she was incredible. But anyway, the, the thing didn't work out. But I was in correspondence with Tiny Tim and his manager, and I used to get these faxes in those days, and it was, it was on that kind of, like, thermal paper. It would all roll up and you'd lose it forever. And there was these, oh, oh, oh uh, Mr Tim is so delighted to work with Mr Briars. And it was all it was completely respectful. But I and I actually last summer I, I decided to take up the ukulele and in Canada there's a every f first Friday of the month there's a kind of ukulele my chosen ukulele band and we all strum along and uh, I'm the I just love Tiny Tim and uh, but the, the he plays with the genre this the song I've got is I know that I'd be satisfied with life it starts with the actual tuning of, of the ukulele which has this strange thing where the highest note is the bottom note on the string da 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 and he sings was it never hit your grandma with a shovel it make a bad impression on her mind and then he goes into the song all I want is fifty million dollars it's unbelievable and it, if Tuesday World would only be my wife and after the speaker comes tiny I love you it's incredible tiny right. Tim. your grandma with a shovel it makes a bad impression on her mind all I want is 50 million dollars and steel skins to protect me from the cold and that's Tiny Tim there. Then I'll be satisfied with life. The choice of Gavin Bryars is with me in studio tonight. Thanks for that, Gavin. That was a treat. Well, it's just like the music I write, isn't it? Very similar. <laughs> it, it is. You should, uh, if, if the other thing goes badly wrong, you can always... Uh, I always got the day job. You've yeah. got you've got the ukulele. Yeah. Go back to the day job. Yeah. Now, while we're in, while we're we've just gone off off the road a little bit, we should probably stay <clears> and, and and do something which also might seem a little bit strange this time of year, which is play a piece of music which is more associated with Christmas, or indeed is completely associated with Christmas. Um, I agree with you. I love that. My favorite Christmas album is that is this one from Carla Bley, and you've chosen Oh Holy Night, which again has been. You know, every you know you hear it every Christmas. It's maybe been over overdone, overcooked. You've heard it a million times. What is it? Do you think about this? And I, I you know, we did, we hadn't discussed this beforehand. I absolutely adore this. This is gorgeous. What is it about it? Do you think? 
Well, it's a complete coincidence that you like it too. I had no idea. But uh, Karloff, to me, uh, sometimes if I'm doing an interview with a newspaper or something, someone will say, who's your favourite composer? And I will generally say Carla Bley. Mm. Because to me, she is uh, one of the greatest musicians around. I mean, she is a, a great player, a great composer, uh, very original. I would say every album she's done will have at least one masterpiece on it. Some stuff will be a little bit hit and miss, but and I, I, we've been friends for about 30 years, and I know her and Steve Swallow very well. And I just love her work. She has this insight into the essence of, um, of, an, of a genre. One thing she does very well is to play very simple, like gospel piano, just simple chords, no decoration, anything. And this particular track comes at the end of a sequence of arrangements for Christmas pieces for a brass quintet, a German brass quintet, and and uh, m most of them are studio recordings. This last one is actually live, and she uh, and f it has features the kind of high uh, top string bass guitar solos of Steve Swallow, who plays beautifully lyrically, and it's just so incredibly well observed. It's just piano and bass for a while, and then these brass chords come in, and it's just uplift. It's rather like Jesus' blood, you know. You have this voice going on, and then something comes in, and. The world opens, the sun comes through the clouds, you know, it's just glorious, it's just glorious. And again, it's, it's worth pointing out that what you might think is an electric guitar here is, is an electric bass guitar yeah. played very high up. He has a high fifth string on it, yeah. 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 By Steve Swallow, yeah. who's, who's a friend of yours, but also, yeah. uh, you know, one of the world's great bass players. Well, we are all are some of the world's greatest bass players. <laughs> Okay, I don't know what uh, I don't know what what this is going to do to people's uh, heads, but here is a holy night. Happy Christmas, everybody. Stuff. Happy Christmas, everybody. Yeah. Gavin Bryars has just chosen a holy night. That's Christmas in Australia, isn't it? <laughs> it's Christmas somewhere. But that that's that's just so beautiful, isn't yeah. it? And and as a bass player yourself, Gavin, just, just listening to what Steve Swaller does there, uh, it's not ornate, it's not showy, but it's just, just bang on. Simply says, so close to the tune, just the way he phrases it, just the, the timing of everything, it's just so absolutely impeccable. And that was Carla Blay. And a version of O Holy Night. Now, in Dundalk, you're going to perform Jesus' Blood. Yes. Now, you don't have Tom Waits, so how are we going to do it? Well, I have the uh, pre-recorded voice of the old man. That's, that's what I do it normally. You fade it in and you add uh, instrumental groups little by little as a kind of a time plan for how we move through it. First, you have this, there's a simple string quintet starts to play, and then you add other groups little by little. And... People enter at particular times, eventually have a whole ensemble playing, and towards the second half and the latter half of it, they're adding these two, these children groups, some are singing, uh, some are playing string instruments, and so eventually have a whole ensemble, then everything just fades away. It just, it passes 25 minutes in the flash of an eye. And you touched on this earlier, there's an element of the unknown about this for you too, and, you, yeah. and, and uh, you'll be surprised by what happens. I'm... Always look forward to being surprised, and I will be surprised. Uh, I may be surprised it will be that I'm not surprised at all, but I'm sure I will be, because I haven't encountered this before, and Eamon has told me about 
the nature of this, so the work that they do with these children, and I think it's remarkable and uh, I think absolutely fantastic that these kids are being involved in this project. Now, by Eamon, you mean Eamon from the Louth Contemporary Music Society. Yeah, Quinn, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I mean, again, every time I say it, Louth Contemporary Music Society, it just seems kind of astonishing, but the, it, look it up, folks. The track record speaks for itself. The, a the, friend of mine once t told me that I had this record from the Louth, and he thought it was Louth in Lincolnshire. I said, right. no, no, it's not Louth in Lincolnshire. No, but the people who have been, you know, uh, and continue to come, it's kind of extraordinary. Let's play something, Gavin, from your most, well, I, you're so prolific. I assume this is still your most recent release, the, the Fifth Century. Uh, actually, I released an album of my own afterwards because when, when <laughs> I, I, I knew that I knew as soon as I said that, I've, got, yes. I've got a couple more on the, in the pipeline coming out. So, well, it's just that when I did the ECM one, um, ECM didn't want me to release anything of mine on either side, oh, right. like five months either side, in case it sort of damaged their sales. I think it would be remarkably unlikely that one of my albums would, uh, would hit ECM's sales. But I haven't done an album of my ensemble since. But this is uh, the last big project, yeah. So it was called the Fifth Century. And uh, it's it's a beautiful thing, and we're going to play a piece from this. It's uh, the sixth movement of it. Yeah. Um, his omnipresence is our field of joys. Tell us a little bit about this piece, Gavin, before we well, play. Well, it's a group called The Crossing, and to my mind, they're probably the best, the greatest choir in North America, just like the Latvians for me are probably one of the greatest in the world. I think The, uh, the Crossing is up there. Uh, it's based in Philadelphia. It's directed by a guy called Donald Nally, who was for a time chorus master at Welsh National Opera. He's American, but... Uh, he, he directs his choir, and they uh, absolutely stunning. And I was asked to, uh, I did a project uh, uh, um, commission for them, and I chose, well, in fact, Donald suggested uh, the, poetry, the writings of Thomas Traherne, the 16th century, 17th century mystic, uh, who wasn't known at all in his lifetime, and later in the end of the 19th century, people started to read him, and it's, it's this book, it's called Centuries of Meditation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th and 5th centuries. And it basically it's a kind of describes his personal relationship with God. It's like him having these conversations with God in a very kind of direct and simple way. And he's just talking about infinity and eternity in, in this quite kind of um, awesome, awestruck way, but in a, in a very practical way. And I think the, the, the text is just so, so kind of uplifting uh, and in, uh, quite extraordinary. And the, the, I, but I did have this, the idea of the piece was it was going to be for choir and sax quartet, which gave it a different kind of colour. So I could use the sax quartet as almost like surrogate voices because the saxes are arranged, soprano, alto, tenor, mm. and so on. So they became like a human thing, and sometimes the two interact and sometimes you think the sopranos are singing but in fact it's the soprano sax line who's keeping going you think how can she stay up there for so long because it's not her it's him playing the sax uh, and it was um, an extended piece uh, it was something I really enjoyed doing in fact I really love more than anything writing the human voice uh, people sometimes ask me you know you, you're a professional composer that's what I do all my life now nothing else and um and I work from commissions, and I accept commissions and do them. But in an ideal world, if I was able to write something I just I wanted to do, it would be writing the human voice and probably writing unaccompanied vocal music, setting the poetry of Petrarch. That would be my ideal way of spending my life. And I'm on my eighth book of madrigals, which many of which set Petrarch in the kind of Renaissance idiom, unaccompanied early music singers, and that's what I love doing. And this is the closest to it in choral terms. In fact, on the album, there are two Petrarch settings yeah, as well, yeah. in addition to this choral work. Uh, so this is, uh, and I'm doing another piece for them later this year, so it's a, a choir that I have a commitment to. OK, here we go.
The fifth century, the sixth movement of that music from Gavin Bryars, who's with me in studio, picking all the music tonight. Well, I kind of wanted him to pick that one. I wanted to hear that. <laughs> I did want to hear that. So, um, Gavin, just listening to some of your choices tonight, you mentioned earlier that, you, that your mother was a very religious lady and, and, uh, and you know, you, you, you learned your, your chops and singing in church and all the rest of it. And you mentioned your wife and, you know, you know Arvo Pert and Orthodox religions and all the rest of it. Are you a religious man yourself? Are you a person well, of not really. faith? I was brought up in the church uh, and I sort of lapsed and I, then I became agnostic when I was doing a philosophy degree as philosophy students do. Then I got interested in Zen Buddhism, and I would say that's probably the closest now, but if you say to someone who's a Zen Buddhist, everyone thinks she's like Richard Gere, you go around <laughs> chanting and doing daft things. I'm not that kind at all. I would say that I accept spiritual experience, but I don't have a belief in God particularly, but I was at a funeral of a friend last Friday, and uh, I was moved, and all the old hymns, I know them, and I'm still touched by them, and I can accept a lot of it. And Some of the things that the vicar said I found were actually quite... Meant sense to me, yeah. and so I'm just sort of neutral on it. But I, uh, the advantage for me of Zen Buddhism is it's the only religion which doesn't involve praying to God. You find your salvation or d within. So it's yeah. it's you, it's, it's you. Your work within yourself to get enlightenment, and that's it means you can you can't pass the buck. You can't say, oh, it's God's fault. This has happened. Yeah. You know, it's mine. And so, but at the same time you will be moved by things which actually have some sort of spiritual connotation. Where does music fit into all that, do you think? I mean, do you think music is is supernatural, is magical, is any, or is it just basically the building blocks of dots put together in a very no, scientific way? That's what I do. It's way? like a guy fixes my carburetor on the car. You know, it's something you do and you do a damn good job if you can. No, it's more than that. It's, it's immensely important, but I, I don't go around with a kind of like a halo. I just uh, hear music and I believe in music and I write music. That's what I think I, I do best. I don't really know many other things and uh, that's what I enjoy doing most and I've been lucky enough to be able to continue doing it. So um, I'm rather like, you know, like a professional footballer who's paid to do the thing he loves, you know, and he gets rather better pay than I do, but I'm not complaining. Well, then, to move it away from yourself, someone like Arvo Pert, who yeah. you know, Maybe it's just the way he looks and all the rest yeah. of it. But you kind of think, is, is, is he the sort of the old holy man from way back, you know? And, and here he is in our own lifetime. Well, he looks like that. But in, in, in person, when you know, get to know him personally, he's, he's a very funny person. He's very, uh, he can be incredibly funny. And sometimes he can be rather crazy. I remember when I was working with him at the major festival 31 years ago. Um, I, I, for, I was moving house and for some reason I had this big removal van and we were leaving the church where we'd been performing and I said oh, I'll give him a lift to his hotel which is near King's Cross Station and I drove down and it, uh, the traffic lights were red and his hotel was like 100 yards further on so he said oh, I'll get out so he got out and I was just waiting for traffic lights and I saw that he was waiting and he was he placed himself in a sprinter's position for the start. So as soon as it went to, to Amber, he started sprinting like crazy down the road. Now I was trying to accelerate after him. You know, he, he's a loony in there. We once got roaring drunk together on vodka in Paris. Oh, I'm and so he, glad to hear that. Oh, absolutely. He, he's a wild side to him. Uh, he's a lovely guy, and he can be very funny. I remember once we were rehearsing uh, this piece of mine, Cabin Requiem, and this, uh, one of the movements has a tenor soloist, and it was with the Estonian National Men's Choir. And there was the tenor voice uh, within the choir. It was a slightly strange one, and it wasn't particularly a pleasant sound, and Arvo couldn't come to the concert, but he came to the rehearsal. And when this tenor solo started, Arvo sort of winced a little bit, and he looked at me and he said, mm, Gavin, ah, it's a requiem. We should feel pain, yes? <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, we're running out of time. Let's have another few musical choices before we go. Um, yes, Irla O'Leonard, you, you have worked with, you mentioned Thomas Bartland and, and Irla earlier on tonight. Um, you've performed in Ireland and, and you've used Irish music and Irish idioms or whatever you, way you want to put it and you've worked with Irla in particular. He's one of your go-to singers. Absolutely, Irla is, is terrific and in fact uh, you were one of the people who actually put us together for, on a project. We'd met in 2004 when I did some uh, performance in in uh, Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin and um, uh, Irla sang a kind of, so he was the opening act of the sort of uh, the opening piece and he sang there and asked me to do a, an arrangement of a song. In fact, when he was singing this song, he was about to sing it and it said, you know, he was playing, and, I, and the whole place was like 500 people. It was packed. I was, I was suddenly at the back of the church, so I could hear him before we did our part. And he got to his last song. He said, oh, I, you know, I'm so glad to be here with Gavin. He said, because I love the man. He said, and I'd love it if he were to do an arrangement of this song for me. And I said, he says, between you and me, that's what he said. And between you and me and 500 people, what are you talking about? And then I'm being sort of seduced into this thing in, front, in the cathedral. So eventually we did it. And there is a, there's a broadcast which, uh, which you took. Uh, you were hearing me singing this, this song. And at the end of the first verse, he stops and says, and this is where Gavin comes in. And then he carries on. It's brilliant. <laughs> the name of the game is hustle. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we did, this, uh, we did this arrangement. And, uh, uh, and then later I did a project where I was setting a lot of Gaelic um, religious poetry. In fact, uh, I think uh, I think it was Declan Declan Donner said that uh, he, he was pretty sure that I'm the only English composer who set Gaelic, as far as he knows, and uh, certainly uh, some very old Gaelic. Yeah, very old. And this comes from uh, Irla's album Invisible Fields. Sonoro. And there's Irla, Irla O'Leonard there in Thurvigin Gwiv there from his album Invisible Fields, the choice of Gavin Bryars, who's uh, with me in studio. And you arranged that, Gavin, as yes. well. Yeah, that was, that's your arrangement. It was, I do with the consort of vials. So yeah. that, but we, we did a version where he plays it, uh, my ensemble play it, so we've, we perform live together, yeah. Now, we mentioned Derek Bailey right at the beginning. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Derek Bailey, because he's well known. Well, for me, he was probably one of the most original and the greatest of all the improvising guitarists. He's played, you know, that's what he did. He played free music most of his life. He was a, it could be a tricky customer. I got on really well. We were very good friends, but a lot of people he rubbed up the wrong way. And, uh, but he was someone who did lots of different collaborations, just in the same way that I do. He take on board different things. He, I mean, it was a beautiful album working with this tap dancer, Will Gaines. He worked with a, a new Japanese male dancer. He did solo things. He worked with Pat Metheny. Uh, he worked with all kinds of people, Anthony Braxton, all kinds of things. Uh, and he, it was an astonishing album when he was playing with drums and bass. It's just this kind of thrash going on, this complete wall of noise and this kind of rhythm stuff. It's just unbelievable. And he... Uh, he has this spirit of adventure and trying things out. And I remember John Zorn persuaded him to do an album of ballads, and it was really peculiar, and it was really quite astonishing. <clears throat> and this particular track I've got here, Let a Little Sunshine In, is a strange 
what he calls the gospel record. And I, I first heard it when he, it was Derek's funeral. Uh, I was one of the people who was to speak at the funeral, me and, and Stuart Lee, the comedian, we were the two people who spoke. And I remember uh, it was one of these classical things, it was bitterly cold in the east end of London. And uh, the, 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 in the crematorium chapel, they actually had the CDs and they started playing the wrong CD at the beginning. It was like a Frank Sinatra or Mel Tormey CD, they got it completely wrong. And I was, anyway, I was talking uh, and I looked out into the audience, uh, into the congregation, and every single person there was wearing a like, black suit, black T-shirt, shades, everyone. It was just like this. And then uh, when then this started, and I, I saw them crack into a smile. I saw this, this white, this teeth appeared out of all this blackness. And it was, this is so, it's, it's, it's apparently a simple kind of gospel thing, but Derek's playing is just bizarre. And I just think it's so completely off, off the wall. It, even Derek surprised me. Okay, let the little sunbeam in from uh, Derek Bailey. Let the little sunbeam in. Let, let that little sun, sunbeam in. Open all the windows, open all the doors, let the love of God shine. Let the little sunbeam in from uh, Derek Bailey, the choice of Gavin Briars, and Derek was one of uh, Gavin's first First collaborators way back. Yeah, it's extraordinary that, isn't it? Total commitment again. And you know something, all the people that you've met, you've played tonight are people who are, you know, may divide opinion, yeah. but man, totally, totally committed to what they're doing. They have doing. a clear direction and sometimes they, they wander erratically, but they know where they're going and they absolutely say they're completely committed to that journey. Is that what it's all about, is it, at the end of it, the day? It is, it is. I mean, there's no point in bullshitting, no point in putting out PR releases about what you're going to do and how great you are. You're only as good as the stuff you do. Uh, you know, it's like that spitting image thing of Andrew Lloyd Webber and look in the mirror and said, I am a great composer, I am a great composer. If you have to be told that, then there's something wrong. Uh, every now and again I get embarrassed. I think the Buffalo Times had this review of that of the Fifth Century album, it says, Gavin Bryars, the world's greatest living composer. Well, I'm big in Buffalo, but I, it means nothing to me in, 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 in Dundalk or Dublin or my village, you know, so at least somebody thinks I'm nice. Gavin, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for putting in all the, all the work into this because it takes, it takes a long time and I appreciate your time. You could have written, you know, a few chamber pieces well in the length of time you've been here, so we appreciate it. I've been scribbling on the back of an envelope <laughs> while you went, when you went to the toilet. That's all right. Well, dedica dedicate it to me then that, uh, and, and keep me a small part. I, I'd be a flush at the time, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. OK. Gavin, your last choice is yes. um, Kapustin. Yes. Tell me about Kapustin. Not a composer I know very well, I have to say. Uh, well, I didn't know him at all, but my, my daughter was studying piano in, in Moscow. Uh, as, as, uh, every now and again, I get a text saying, Dad, can you f find this music? And it's like Kapustin. It turns out that Kapustin is actually published by my publisher. And he's a, a Russian composer in his 70s uh, whose work is based entirely on American jazz. And there was, I think, there was a radio program about the effect of. Uh, USA on Russian music and this one was the most extreme because he's the only one who's never left Russia and his music is it sounds like he's it's our Tatum but it's all completely written out and it's unbelievably virtuosic playing it's really like really fast jazz but 
it's completely composed. Now you see, before before I hear this, and I haven't heard this before, no. sometimes you, you hear classical music that's supposedly influenced by jazz, and the jazz fan in me is not satisfied by Absolutely. it at all. Because, well, for, first of all, it doesn't swing. No. Um, my idea of hell is to have something like Kiri Takanua sings a Cole Porter songbook yeah, or something like, oh, exactly. no, I'll walk a million miles. Or the yeah. Kronos Quartet playing Thelonious Monk. No, no, don't do it. Walk yeah. away. But this is something else. This, to me, it does swing, and he it has real drive. The guy really knows jazz, and you, you think this is improvised, but it's completely written out. Wow. Well, this, this, thanks for this one. This is a treat because I, I don't know this at all. I'm looking forward to it. Gavin, once again, thanks a million for coming. My pleasure, John. Gavin Briars. Thanks very much. And I'll see you on uh, Monday night here on RTE, tomorrow night on RTE Lyric FM at 7 o'clock. Ian Midlin is next with Sound Out. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.